Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Darrick. I only just realised this has theme music. (laughs) (laughs) Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a team of astronauts that arrive on Mars which is in the process of being terraformed for human civilization, but aliens have other ideas. It is Mission to Mars versus Red Planet. Let the terraforming begin. Mm. So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 10th of March 2000, Mission to Mars was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. When the first manned mission to Mars meets with a catastrophic and mysterious disaster after reporting an unidentified structure, a rescue mission is launched to investigate the tragedy and bring back any survivors. So Gabe, did you originally catch Mission to Mars when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Ben, I don't know how you think I would recall the specifics. Specificities? The, spe- the specifics of this movie 20 years later, but I definitely saw it at the movies and I guess it was just that halcyon year where they let Gary Sinise be the main guy and that's it for me. I recall nothing else. Oh, no, the aliens. Yep, we'll get to that. But I'm afraid 20 years on, it did not remain a formative, transformative movie-going experience. For me. What about you? You talk about this movie a lot. (laughs) This will be a really short podcast episode. (laughs) Well, this falls into the classic era that we refer to, the time when your host here, Ben Phelps, worked at the Art House Cinema and got to see free movies at the neighbouring commercial cinema, where little Benny Boy here saw a lot of free commercial movies. And this one was one of them. I actually think. This is one of the first times I really appreciated this whole uh, coincidental nature in which Hollywood produces two films based on the same idea. It really was crystallising around the late 90s and early 2000s. And I was pretty jazzed to see this film, and I saw it, I think, after work one day at a commercial cinema. I can't remember much about it. But I do recall at the time being horrified and awestruck, spoilers, for the appearance of the aliens at the end of the film, which looked kind of like- No, hold on. We'll get to that because, I mean, that's a big thing, right? Like, let's not, let's not, that's that's sort of the film's, what's the opposite of crowning? (laughs) That's, okay. I won't step on that. Yeah, well, let me just say- I had seen Ants, the movie, the animated DreamWorks movie, (laughs) two years before, Uh, and I had sort of post-traumatic stress flashbacks to seeing Ants. Fair. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Anyway, I really enjoyed the film at the time. I have a background as a Catholic through my mother. Now, I'm actually an atheist now, but back in the day when I was a kid, I'd go to Mass every Sunday And I always this fixation between the intersection of science and religion. 
And Mission to Mars really stuck with me at the time and for a few years afterwards because a bit like Interstellar, actually, it kind of crosses over between science in regarding alien life and spirituality. And that's why it kind of left a little bit of a legacy with me. So we'll get to that in our review. But as for the occasion, this film wasn't met with huge critical acclaim and it wasn't like back in the day where people had, you know, Mission to Mars posters on their walls if they were students like they did with Pulp Fiction or Train Spotting. This wasn't a seminal space exploration or alien movie. So it was just a good time at the pictures, as you'd say, Gabe. I would. I mean, it was a Brian De Palma film and I suppose, what, in 19... Uh, oh, 2000, end of the 90s. You know, you're still interested in a Brian De Palma movie, although this was obviously on, I suppose, De Palma's sort of more downward trajectory of his uh, career. Yeah, it's so funny you mention that because I actually saw this film, I think, after reading back in the day these things called magazines yeah. before the interwebs where you had like all of these film gossip websites and so on that I visit frequently today. I recall reading in a magazine about this upcoming film called Mission to Mars by this incredible visual auteur, Brian De Palma, who I loved before, and he'd stepped into a big, well, it became the start of a franchise, Mission Impossible in 96. So I was pretty excited to see what he'd do with the space genre. The guy is renowned for his incredible camera angles. You know, Scarface is just a two-hour filmmaking lesson particularly if you're a cinematographer. So I was pretty excited to see it for that reason, and that's what actually got me jazzed to see the film. And also, too, Gary Sinise had been in Apollo 13, so that was like, oh, okay, is this a spiritual, futuristic sequel to Apollo 13? So pretty enthused to see it and uh, enjoyed it at the time. So let's perhaps jump to our second twin movie because later that year, on the 10th of November 2000, Red Planet was released, and here's its synopsis from IMDb. Astronauts and their robotic dog, Amy, which stands for Autonomous Mapping, Evaluation and Evasion Unit, <laughs> search for solutions to save a dying Earth by searching on Mars, only to have the mission go terribly awry. Awry? Awry. Awry. <laughs> See, I don't, think, I don't think the filmmakers wrote this because, you know, I don't think they'd use the word Ori or Ori. <laughs> you know, what's that? There's a. I've had two beers, my friend, okay? So you must no, no. excuse my uh, tripping over the words. There's, there's like a Grisham movie or something where one of the, oh, no, it's Primal Fear or something, and Richard Gere says to Laura Linney, oh, don't use the word heinous. The juries will think you're like a toff, you know? And it's like awry. Ooh, it went awry. <laughs> Uh, the mission's gonna rye. When we get to our review, we'll actually talk about the dog and the fact that that actually features oh, yeah. in the synopsis is problematic by itself. But but you know, no, no one said Houston. We've gone awry. <laughs> all right, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see this movie at the movies. Actually, all I really remember of this movie is the plot being described to me by friends who had been underwhelmed by the movie. So. I can't really even go into that into great detail because if you're having the plot of Red Planet just described to you by some people, it's probably not a particularly eventful evening. <laughs> so um, I actually watched this for the first time. So, yeah, I, I, 
I I feel like I kind of maybe missed out on on something, but you couldn't probably couldn't appreciate the nineties of this movie actually in two thousand, and it's something that needs to be experienced, you know, twenty years later. So I'm afraid there's no great anecdote from me. Yep, I hear you, brother. I saw it myself in preparation for this pod as well, uh, video on demand. Look, uh, look, um, I'll wait for the review, but. This is a classic case where the first film spoiled my interest for the second film, or rather sullied my interest, I should say. I wasn't keen to see it because I already thought I'd seen the Mission to Mars movie, which was actually called Mission to Mars beforehand. So I didn't have any great desire to see it. And I recall back in the days of newspapers, this film had pretty bad reviews. So I thought, you know what? I saw the good version of this a few months beforehand at the start of the year in 2000, why put myself through the second version and a poorer version? And also, I mean, I could have seen it for free. Back in the day where Benny's seeing free movies at the commercial cinemas nearby across the road, but even then, I wasn't even keen to see a free version of this. The only thing that made me consider going to see it was the fact that it was shot in Australia. And, of course, you know, there's always a curiosity to see how a film looks, uh, particularly a genre film like The Matrix and, in this case, Red Planet, when they take the Australian landscape or an Australian city and fictionalise it in a futuristic world. But besides that, you know. Yeah, but that's just like we've got some deserts <laughs> and then they're going to make the skies orange in post despite there being an atmosphere on Mars. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... We should probably just do a quick little uh, history lesson and jump before we jump into our review and find out how we got here with these two movies. So it appears that both these films arose separately without any connection to each other. Uh, starting with Mission to Mars, that was shot overseas in Vancouver in British Columbia, Jordan and the Canary Islands. The interesting thing about this film which surprised me is that Brian De Palma wasn't originally on this film. He actually came in at the last minute after they'd cast everyone and everything was, like, done and dusted. So he basically came on and the previous director didn't have what he thought were the funds to make the film, so left the project. De Palma entered and then I think, ironically, once he came on board, actually managed to attract more money for the CGI budget for the film. But it was ready to roll. Do you know who the previous director was? Who was the previous director? No, do you? No, no, no idea. I mean, God damn it, that'd be some good info. <laughs> like- I agree, I agree. What's interesting about that is that Brian De Palma is such a visualist. He's the sort of director who strikes me as someone who would really want to spend a lot of time in pre-production to storyboard his shots. So it'd be interesting to know how much time he actually did have to prepare. Um, as for Red Planet... That film, as I mentioned earlier, was filmed in Outback Australia and also in southern Jordan. So they were both filmed in a similar location in Jordan. Uh, That one apparently was a disaster. So I couldn't find anything on the internets about how these two films happened at the same time. But I will talk later about the terrible working relationship between co-stars Tom Sizemore and Val Kilmer. But as for their origins, it appears to be, yet again, just a coincidence. I'm shocked that two 
Major League assholes uh, didn't get on well. Although I'm surprised you didn't say, Ben, earlier that you went to see Red Planet purely for the heat reunion. Oh, of course. Oh, man. Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right, let's jump into a review then, first of all, starting with Mission to Mars, which was released first. So, Gabe, you go for it. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film and what didn't float your boat? I think, Ben, you would absolutely agree that the De Palmerisms are what elevate this movie. The long oneers or the, I mean, basically just the long oneers. That's that's really what elevates this movie. Just some actually classy filmmaking. I guess as we talked about earlier, I I, I think that the first three quarters of this movie is a pretty serviceably fun. Uh, how will a bunch of astronauts go save somebody? And then it gets very stupid. And again, I'll wait to talk about that. But um, you know, the the opening sequence where they're at the barbecue, there's some really nice filmmaking there. And then there's the very memorable sequence where they're walking around the spaceship and the set's obviously built on a huge gimbal, which is really great. Although, I mean, it really feels like this movie is like 2001, a dumb odyssey. Like just the idiot version of 2001. Right down to some of aping some of those shots, you know. But, you know, De Palma. That's my review. I liked it because of De Palma and otherwise most of it is very forgettable. So your review basically is Mission to Mars, a review by Gabe Dowrick, De Palma, eh, but I like De Palma, eh. No, De Palma, nice. De Palma, good. De Palma, good. Movie, uh, trying to do 2001, eh, not so good. But, hey, look, I hadn't seen 2001 when I first saw this, so like, I was probably pretty impressed by its kind of like, I don't know, uh, stupid alien faux spirituality shit at the end. But come on, Ben, like you got to agree, not for nothing, but that shot as the astronauts walk through the spaceship that's obviously built on a huge gimbal is some pretty great filmmaking. Like the the scale of that or the the art direction, the photography, all of those things working together is is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. To remind our viewers who haven't seen Mission to Mars recently, it's like a rear window shot where basically you have – a series of windows of the spaceship, like a cross-section, and it's spinning around, which kind of makes sense because the spaceship would spin around. But for every single person in their respective room, they're all upright because gravity's working in their room. And you get to see essentially the geography of the spaceship in one shot, which is one of those classic De Palma oneers. Is that the best way to describe it? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Um and I guess, you know, it's like watching the behind the scenes of The Fly or something when you've got Jeff Goldblum apparently climbing on the the roof and what they've actually got is a whole set built on this giant rotating gimbal and so that the actors will just walk but as the set rotates and the camera is in a fixed position, it rotates with the set so it looks like the set isn't moving but the actors are like walking up or down these very impossible angles so, I mean, from a technical standpoint, I think that's really, really fun and interesting. And to be honest, that was really the only thing I actually remembered about the the film. Um, you know, Jerry O'Connell's performance never stuck with me, though I do like Jerry. Go to Jerry. <laughs> actually, speaking before you walk away from that particular shot, 
It's the same technique they used to film Inception. Oh, the hallway fight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really great. What's his name? Joseph Gordon-Levitt is having that fight and in real life they actually had that room spinning around so those guys are like racing around the room and the furniture is locked in place and it appears like they're kind of floating and running at the same time as the gravity switches on and off. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So like that one, as I said, the fly. I mean, anything that has really interesting, you know, I'm sure there's a whole really, <clears throat> hold on. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of classic film examples where people walk up the walls and things like that that are probably, I just can't think of anything off the top of my head. My my, my best frame of reference for this shit is, is The Fly. The TV series Batman. Oh, Batman like climbing the side of, well, that's not really. Yeah, totally. I mean, sort of. That's just turning the set sideways. Yeah. I think this is a little bit more um, mechanically ingenious. Uh, but it is a great effect, you know. It's a great effect. And, and yeah, Nolan also, I guess, very famously did it in that um, Inception fight scene. The other technique that defines Palmer's cinematography Actually, does he have a go-to DP? Ah, uh, De Palma. Oh, that's a good question. Who shot all of his movies? Like Scarface and so on. Anyway, what I was going to say was one of the key visual traits of his movies is the use of diopter shots, which we've actually mentioned in one of the podcast episodes beforehand. Gabe, do you want to quickly remind our listeners as to what is a diopter shot and why you hate it? <laughs> well, thank you, Ben. I'll take the uh, second part first as they say in a quiz show. I hate it because it looks fake, but what it is, it's a lens that they can put on the front of the camera that can put two different points of uh, two different points of the image in focus that would otherwise not be in focus because of lensing. I don't know, is that a good description? Like where you would otherwise have a shallower lens drop off and the background be, be soft, you can put a diopter on which can then split the focus. Um, and you can have both of those elements in focus, although sometimes you get quite a fuzzy line down the the middle. Exactly. For the non-filmmakers amongst the audience, if you get an iPhone and you take a photograph and the person in the middle of the photograph is in focus but the background is blurred, that's where you've got one thing in focus and the rest not in focus. With a diopter shot, you basically have one person on the right-hand side of the screen in focus but as uses a second lens to keep the stuff in the far background, like the trees, also in focus, which means if you have a really cool shot like someone's eye in the foreground, ordinarily the back would be really, really blurry, but you can actually then have stuff happening in the background of the image, which is in focus. But as Gabe says, to do that, you've got two lenses split in half, basically, and this blurry line in the middle where those two lenses connect. And Brian De Palma likes telling often two stories in one shot with something happening in the front and something happening in the back. But in this film, I can't recall any of those very clever to say, you know, I mean, I want to say clever, I'm being a bit facetious, but that these shots draw attention to themselves. Um, they're not invisible to the audience, like they're very showy. And I can't recall any of these showy shots in this film. I think it's much more shot where you see everything happening in the frame all at focus at the same time without any kind of obvious lens techniques like that. But correct me if I'm wrong. No, I don't remember. I remember the classic De Palma one. But also to answer your earlier question, uh, Stephen H. Barham, who shot this movie, also shot 
Mission Impossible, The Untouchables, Carlito's Way, Raising Cain, Casualties of War, Body Double, a whole bunch of De Palma movies. So he is sort of one of De Palma's more common collaborators. Although this was the last movie he did with De Palma. So... Make that of it what you will. This was really the last big studio film that he did. I think he did Femme Fatale shortly afterwards, but really his 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 luster uh, was lost after this, don't you think? Like he didn't he wasn't the golden child of Hollywood directing after this. He had Black Dahlia, I think, in twenty oh six. Hey, <laughs> yeah, he's he, he's had a pretty wonky last twenty years. Fair to say. Yeah, I mean, the Black Dahlia, I saw at the pictures and that was not great. Um, and he, what, he did Redacted, I can't even remember that. Passion, that sort of lesbian romance movie with Mc, Rachel McAdams and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Domino. But, yeah, like, poor, I think I think this was definitely on the the downside, downslide, rather, of, of De Palma's, uh, you know, fucking illustrious career. And, like, what, from, like, what, 1980? I mean, or oh, 1970, 19, what did he do to carry? 1975, 1976. 1976 to 2000 or 1998, 20 years as a gun. I mean, that's, you can't really complain about that. A few hiccups on the way. Bonfire of the Fanities, hello. But, you know, fuck, pretty great run. Yeah, Totally. Now, we should probably jump to another part of our review of this film. We've been discussing the visuals because, hey, it's De Palma. Sure. Let's discuss casting. You go first. How did it work for you? Because it's an interesting cast. Okay. I've got thoughts, but I want to hear your thoughts first. I spent a lot of time wondering if famous Hollywood liberal Tim Robbins and kind of famously Hollywood conservative, although I'm not sure if he's like a Trump conservative. I think he's more of a respect the troops type, you know, conservative, like Clint or something. Gary Sinise. I wonder if they were like constantly talking politics on set. Uh, So that was my thought. But I have a feeling that's not your thought. Yours might be more broadly about the idea of casting Gary. This is Gary's big lead role, right? Gary Gaza. Okay. I have thoughts on Gary Sinise. Do you think this was Gary Sinise's first like lead in a big movie because before this, you know, like he's quite famous for playing sort of villains, you know, Ransom or Snake Eyes and obviously Lieutenant Bone in Forrest Gump. But, but yeah, this was his shot, right? Yeah, look, this falls into the interesting category of Kevin Spacey. What? <laughs> but not for the reasons you may think. What? <laughs> no. So Kevin Spacey was a supporting actor and someone say a character actor. And one of the criticisms of Kevin Spacey, besides his personal life and some absolutely horrendous choices, but one of the criticisms of the casting of Kevin Spacey has been casting him as a lead is that should Kevin Spacey have ever been a lead? Now, Kevin Spacey got a lead role and won an Oscar for it, I would say deservedly, for American Beauty. Right. But is he actually a lead actor? And this is one of the things they say about Brad Pitt. What? <laughs> Brad Pitt's one. What? They do. They say Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. They say. Oh, yeah, sure. Brad Pitt is one of the best supporting 
actors, one of the best character actors around, but they say he's been blessed with a leading man's body and face. I think Brad Pitt had a pretty great career as a leading man and can't really complain. I mean, whether you like Kevin Spacey in the shipping news or something like that, it's pretty different. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just sharing thoughts. <laughs> okay, sure. Putting sure. opinions out there. Sure, sure, sure. This is a little meal for us to yeah, no, no. consume, digest. I get it. Um, I get it. Don't shoot the messenger. Okay. Now. Gary Sinise, back to the Kevin Spacey analogy. Yeah. Gary Sinise, I think, was fantastic in Ransom. I think he was a good 2IC, good supporting actor in Apollo 13. Gary Sinise has a very, to me, I would call menacing look about him. (laughs) There is something under the eyes. I think there's a reason why he was cast as a baddie and potentially could have had a career as a pervert on screen on screen, but to me he was always best cast as a villain. Now, of course, he wouldn't like to hear that as an actor. Every actor wants to play a variety of roles. However, without having been in the boardrooms of studio executives in 1999-2000, without working for an agency in LA at the time, I suspect that his cachet increased after Apollo 13 He was oh so hot right now. Ransom was great for his career and this was a step up to a leading man role. Mm -hmm. I get it. I just think he was badly cast. I think he's a very good actor and he's the wrong actor in this film. I look at him on screen this film as a guy who's a widower who's lost his wife and has incredible motivation to be on this mission but quite equally could be quite a liability on this mission as someone suffering from, you know, incredible sadness, if not depression. Yeah, liabilities is what you want. That's a wild card. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're doing a screenplay, maybe not in the real world. Maybe. Wild card. And I just don't, to me, he doesn't, he has a look where I think he's more likely to basically shank someone uh, prison style when things go wrong than actually save the day. Sure. I don't – I think, for example, Tim Robbins would have been much better in that role. Now, in sharp contrast, I think Tim Robbins is fantastic in this film. The part where he has to – the romance with Connie Nelson, who I also love as an actress, and she had a kick-ass year. This was her year. This was like this film – and Gladiator. That was like a basic a one-two punch. Like, Yeah, maybe. But I think Connie Nielsen peaked in 1996 with Devil's Advocate, but that's just me. Well, is that because she was half nude? <laughs> uh, does she do nudity in that? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. There's a very dramatic uh, full full wide shot where she drops her robe and uh, is out. No, that's Charlize. No, Connie does it as well. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Wow. I'm pretty sure because I was hiring videos in the video store and I recall- the video was kind of all flickery, where it had been paused numerous times. Oh, sure, sure. At that at that space, I recall because I was copying one VHS to another VHS because you could do that with two VCRs back in the day. Not that we endorse that. Not that we endorse that. But just speaking of history, look, frankly, if you got two VCRs, you should do it now. It's fine. No one cares. It's VHS. You know what's weird about Gary Sinise though? He's been in way way fewer movies. Than you think. Like if you think, oh, I bet Gary Sinise was in tons of movies through the 90s, 2000s and 2010s. It's literally like he was in that Mice and Men of Mice and Men movie and then he was in The Stand 
Then Forrest Gump, he had a small role in Quick and the Dead. Apollo 13, Albino Alligator, Ransom, Snake Eyes, Imposter, which was a weird movie where he was also the lead, I think, that no one's ever seen. Mission to Mars. Then he did that TV show and that was it. Yeah, Gary Sinise, though, what he did was he took all his chips and he got in on that CSI franchise in 2004, back in the day where it wasn't quite the golden age of TV yet, at least not not a network TV. So The Sopranos started in 99. It took quite a few years for people to start saying, oh, it's the first wave of TV, the golden age of TV. And he was on a network show a free-to-air TV show, but he got in on that and that went ran from 2004 to 2013. He was probably cashing a pretty good paycheck on that. Oh, totally. This is before Netflix really exploded. So this was the era where CSI, Desperate Housewives, Lost, they were huge cash cow TV shows with massive ratings and streaming hadn't quite, you know, eaten their lunch yet. So- you're right. He had this this run of memorable roles in not many films, then gets into TV 16 years ago and essentially kind of vanishes off the big screen. And I can't recall the last film he was on at the cinema. I, I think he's essentially retired. I think he spends most of his time being a huge advocate for servicemen and women. And he dedicates most of his time now to working with veterans. So, you know, good good for him for- for that. Yeah, I didn't realise that. I didn't realise either that he's a notable Republican. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. He always struck me as more of the, I don't know, I don't know if it's like splitting hairs or, but um, more that kind of like old school Republican as opposed to, you know, the type that The Rock might be, for instance, as opposed to- Or James Woods. Yeah, no, no. I think not the type that James Woods is. <laughs> not the like- um, raving batshit fuckknuckery, you know, um, and more just like a, a quiet conservatism. Like if you met Kurt Russell, you know, and you'd be like, oh, Kurt Russell's conservative, huh, but Goldie Horn is probably a liberal. But you'd be like, eh, I guess that's I guess that's all right, just different different types out here, you know, and your ranch in Montana or whatever, <laughs> you know, as opposed to just like 5G is causing coronavirus, duh, Donald Trump should f- I don't know, whatever the fuck they're into. Probably delete that part. <laughs> Again, not endorsed by this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, by the way, I must say something. Let's just stick with this Gary Sinise thing for a second. I feel that I'd be most close in personality in real life to people like Al Flaming Galaz from Australia's TV soap Home and Away or Dr. Carl from Neighbours or this guy, Gary Sinise from CSI Miami, sorry, CSI New York, or who's our redheaded mate from CSI Miami? David Caruso. Yeah. I'd be like these guys, Caruso, Sinise, Al, Dr. Carl. Okay. Because I I like that. Like, they're, they're very human and they go, you know what? I don't need to play a troubled single dad in an independent Sundance film. I just want to turn up act, go home, pay the mortgage, save up some cash for my retirement and just very quietly retire. I sort of feel that as kind of uh, adventurous as I am in many ways in my life, I like the way that they kind of go, you know what, 
this just works. This business is hard. I've finally been rewarded with a franchise, be it CSI Miami or in Gary Sinise's case, CSI New York. I'm just going to stick with this for the next 9, 10, 11 years, make some serious cash, and then, hey, if I choose to be an indie film afterwards, sure. But I'm now set up for life. There's something about that that as risk-averse as it might sound as a creative, I can really empathise with. Cool, Ben, but who the fuck is Al from Home and Away? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, but, but, but broadly, your problem was with Gary is that he's grimacing too much. Yeah, basically he's just not cast correctly. By the way, little rewind there. I was referring to Alf, but, you know, I call him Al. Alf. Yes. Oh, sure, whoever you're referring to. Someone someone who didn't watch Home and Away in 1995 to 2000 and, I don't know, 2017. Yeah, would have no context. That's right. But Gary Sinise grimaces a lot. And, look, I agree. He, he, I think he is a incredibly capable and good actor and was very good in something, say, like Albino Alligator. But I agree. Wonderful. But maybe not Maybe not in, in this. This is a casting criticism, not an acting criticism. Gary Sinise is a fantastic actor. I just think badly cast in this film. Yeah. yeah. Whereas everyone else is great. I find Jerry O'Connell a bit whiny. I mean, that's, I think, the role on the page in the script. But I thought... Tim Robbins was fantastic. He gave the film a lot of heart. I thought our mate Don, Mr. Boogie Nights, was awesome. I thought he did a great job of fluctuating between a measured astronaut at the start to a bit of a madman when they discover him through to being much more his balanced, reasonable self afterwards. Mm -hmm. I've always had plenty of stock invested in Connie Nielsen I wish she was on screen a lot more. I think she's fantastic. Um, I, I've always wondered why she hasn't been in more. And I think it's because of the choices she made in her personal life in terms of family and so on, which is great. But I always thought there was more for her to do on screen as a performer. And she's great in this film. And it kind of blows my mind still that she actually is Danish originally. There's a few times when her accent's a bit janky, uh, but- I thought she was great and the chemistry between her and Tim Robbins was excellent. Um, I've got to say, it broke my heart, spoilers, in this scene where Tim Robbins essentially has to commit suicide by space. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. It's the funniest bit. To stop. (laughs) Funny. Well, I found it pretty moving because. So great. (laughs) Spoilers. Essentially, Connie Nielsen wants to save him. Softy. And if she saves him, she risks dying. So to save her, he pulls his helmet off in space. Yeah, but then his head freezes. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah, it's entirely freezes. And <laughs> I kind of, th- they actually show quite a few shots for longer than expected on his <laughs> really grey, frozen, cracked face. Yeah. It's quite alarming. Yeah, it's very stupid looking. They should have made his head explode. Like um, all of my information about Mars, and that's why I made that um, should have been a blue sky on Mars, is entirely derived from the movie Total Recall. <laughs> so so that's that's where my science comes from. I should just put it out there. My science is – so I reckon it would have been better if 
his eyes had like popped out of his head. I, I love it. I love it. Go on living with that PTSD, Connie Nielsen's character, whatever your name is. Also, she gets over her husband dying very quickly. But that's, that's, that's a proper of nothing. We should talk about the aliens, Ben. Yeah, let's jump to the aliens. Let's jump to the aliens. So at the end of the film, it's revealed that what causes this uh, disaster at the start is actually aliens where they have essentially set up what is ostensibly a security system to their spacecraft, which the first astronauts don't realise, trigger it and die, and then our heroes discover it's a spaceship and we meet an alien, what would you say, a pre-recorded hologram? I don't know. I mean, first of all, good luck ever explaining how that stupid-ass thing that they figure out with the radio waveforms where they do the maths and then they flash back to Jerry O'Connell's, like, um, M&M's DNA helix and then Gary Sinise figures this shit out as if his plan could have been the only possible answer. It's, it's like... I had no idea what it was like. Not Primer complicated either. It's not like a movie like Primer where you're like, wow, these guys are smart. It's just like everyone just goes along with Gary Sinise's stupid radio sine wave plan. It just doesn't make any sense, but all right. I've got to say I really like the um, deduction, but it is a case where his first idea is it the only idea and it turns out to be the right idea. But I actually do like it and I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how the screenwriters came up with that idea because it's pretty cool. But it's one of those story screenwriting tricks where it just moves so quickly, you just go with it. You just go with it. Yeah, totally. And I went with it at the time. I do think let's say it's what I call the refrigerator moment where you go to the fridge two hours, one day after movie and go, hang on. As you think back to various plot beats and think, that's more of a plot hole, I think. And this is potentially that. But I've got to say, at the time, as you're watching the movie, I do go with it and I just think, okay, these guys are smart guys. They've worked it out. Yeah, totally. Um, Tell me, what do you think? Let's jump to the alien. What do you think of the character's design of the alien? I mean, it's weird how a movie can be almost entirely torpedoed and all of the goodwill that came before it of just like a fun movie about some astronauts trying to get to get to Mars can just get wrecked by some dumbass looking alien cuz it's just it's just ludicrous looking and i guess in 2000 that's the early days of fully cgi characters and it just it doesn't work for me it's bad I just don't, I don't like the design of it. I don't like the execution of it. I don't even want to be mean to it. Like, I like, I like them standing in a Final Fantasy VII cutscene where they show all of the, the universe and all that shit happens. That's all fine. But God damn, it's just goofy looking. Like you said, I didn't think of ants when I saw it, but now that you say ants, it just looks like ants. It's weird. It's ants. Yeah, look, I think it gets a get out of jail card because. As it, the story unfolds, so first of all, they enter this huge structure which transpires to be a spaceship, which you don't realise initially, and they meet the alien and it does look very goofy. It's very early 2000s CG. What is to me the get-out-of-jail card, though, is that it kind of is revealed to be more like a, a pre-recorded message. 
which in some ways does give a little bit of leave bit of a leave pass in terms of the rendering of that character. No, but don't you think then if you were going to do that, you would design it in such a way where you could incorporate that idea into it? Like you could have had it flickering or at an actual lower resolution or the idea of the thing. It's being- Like in Star Wars with Princess Leia as a hologram. Basically, yeah. Like, like if that was supposed to be the execution, don't you think you could get around the technical limitations and or design choice by having it executed in a way that lent more into that idea? I agree 100%. We talk all the time about leaning into your disadvantages and making them integrated and often an advantage. So you're in an era with the incapacity to create fully realised CG characters. So why not actually use the excuse of a flickering hologram to degrade the image so your audience isn't picking it apart? I think, Gabe, the filmmaker intended for us to think initially it was an alien in the room with them. And then like the reveal in the Star Wars film The Force Awakens where you first meet this giant version of Snoke and then at the end of the scene it's revealed to be a hologram, I think that was the same idea. Uh, you meant to think it's a real character and then there's a reveal that's actually a pre-recorded message. Uh, but I agree. I would have gone for something closer to the first Star Wars where you essentially set the expectation that's a pre-recorded message. The design of the character too is, I guess, trying to take advantage of better CG than what was available earlier. But as I say that and give this film an excuse for the technical limitations of the time, I then think, well, hang on. Jurassic Park was in 1993 and that T-Rex looked pretty amazing seven years beforehand. So shoddy? Yeah, I mean, Gladiator was the same year as this. You know, Gladiator has great VFX. Like lots of movies had really good VFX before this. So they they should have just done a puppet, <laughs> a big puppet. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yep. Or Man in suit, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's a very silly, silly looking alien. And then also, Gary, like I'm gonna blast off to the alien planet. Yeah, let's discuss that ending. So, first of all, what do you think of the theory behind the end of the film, like the storyline behind that spaceship? And what do you think about the conclusion and Gary's choice? Hey, Ben, did you ever see um the Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man? No. Okay, so in To Serve Man, right? It's like these aliens come to Earth and they have a book called To Serve Man and everyone on Earth is like, oh, these are such sweet aliens. They're here to serve us. But then it turns out it's a cookbook about how to serve man. Do you get it? I love it. Okay. So what if Gary Sinise gets blasted off the alien planet and this is all I could stop thinking about and he turns up there and they're like, excellent, another idiot. We eat you now. (laughs) Why would some intergalactic travelling million-year-old civilization give a flying fuck about some like... You know, Gary Sinise <laughs> turning up. Oh, so Gary Sinise is basically like a truffle on a drone. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like if you're an alien species that is so far developed that not only did you colonise Mars but you colonised Mars before, you know, millions of years ago or whatever, and then this chump shows up, I don't know. All right, look, I feel you're being a bit harsh. I think the idea or the logic behind the film is pretty cool. So just a reminder for the audience The aliens that live on Mars, Mars is blowing up. So they escape Mars. One spaceship 
can't escape, is that right? Or it chooses not to escape? I thought it went to Mars on purpose because that's when they say, like, they colonised the universe or something. But I might have vagued out. Oh, so, oh so, that, so, that, so, one, okay, so one spaceship chooses to go to Earth to leave a DNA footprint and it crashes on Earth, much like the astronauts, sorry, the asteroid crashed on Earth billions of years ago and uh, caused the creation of life. And so rather than it having been an asteroid or meteor, we're told this film was actually a spaceship that crashed and the DNA of that alien became the first life on Earth, which is similar in some ways to Ridley Scott's Prometheus, right? Yeah. And what movie did we watch recently that also had like a version of that Fatboy Slim music video of Evolution? What movie was that? I uh, can't recall. I swear we watched a... I swear we watched a movie on to talk about on this podcast and it's just zapped back in my brain and god damn it. You know that and it was like a a a lizard gets up on a fish turns into a lizard and then it like turns into a crocodile or whatever and then it turns into a bird or a galah. Oh, of course. Yes, I'm blanking. Which movie is that? Now hang on. Fuck. That's killing me now. I think it's actually in this film, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> like is it in this movie? They all blend together. They all blend together. But I was like I was like, "Oh god, damn. it could have been knowing. I don't know. If it was, maybe it was this, maybe it was no, but I was like, "Oh man, they just done this Fat Boy Slim music video, you know." And I, oh, maybe it was this. Maybe it's when the alien gives like a PowerPoint presentation. It's the PowerPoint presentation. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then we left our planet and went over the world, the universe. It's like, is it this? Anyway, very silly. But you're right. Like knowing, for example, the similar idea. You, but it was the reverse. Rather than alien landing on Earth and leading, leaving its DNA to create life. In knowing a recent podcast we did, the, the Alex Proyas film, they take the humans and they transplant them to a different planet. Mm. Same idea in reverse. Mm. But you're right, it is very similar to Provenant or Cov- Cov- Covenants or whatever that alien one was called. Prometheus. Promethean. Prometheus. <laughs> and those like big, big, lunky, dumbass looking guys who like melt into the water or whatever that opening sequence. Exactly. Is. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So these, these aliens just jizzing in streams. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we jump to our review of Red Planet? Uh, for Mission to Mars, no. I hate it in movies when they flash back to an earlier scene in the movie that only occurred like six minutes earlier. So in this they do it when Gary Sinise gets the idea and he'd previously eaten Jerry O'Connell's um, DNA M&Ms, and then they flash back to it so you don't forget. It's like, you motherfuckers, I remember that. It was literally 15 minutes ago. How stupid do you think I am? Exactly. Trust the audience. We're going to recall that previous scene. I hear you. God damn it. But uh, but no, I have nothing else to say about this movie. What about you? Uh, no, that, that's it for me. I do like the general point when there's a disaster in space and they have to basically... Swiss Army knife solution. I always appreciate that. I always like the idea of, you know, finding out where the hole is in the spaceship and how quickly they can get into a suit and uh, how much, how many tools they have to try and repair. I like that stuff. Do you? Um, in this film here where there's a hole, he gets basically what appears to be Sally's No More Gaps and a plug. I like that. Well, Ben, if you like plugging holes in doomed spaceships in space, I feel you're going to love Red Planet. Which brings us to our review of Red Planet. So let's switch lanes. Gabe, 
What did you like and what grinded your gears? I, I, I'm i amazed 20 years later. This I think when's Red Planet set? It's like set in 2020, right? Oh, I thought it was like 2052 or something. Oh, wow. Okay, even better. I cannot believe they made a movie set so far after the 90s that looked and sounded so much like the 1990s. Like it was incredible. It's like. Are you referring to Tom Sizemore's hair? Like, no, no, more like Val Kilmer's wardrobe. Oh, the soundtrack. Every song in this feels like it's like the whole movie was scored to the propeller head spy break, which is that track from The Matrix. Boom, boom. It's like that breakbeat thing that they use in maybe the hallway shootout. Like the whole thing is just that, you know. Um, totally. It is the most incongruous score to a movie I've heard uh, in a long time. Like that Propellers track works so well in Matrix, right, for that one scene. But yeah, yeah. the music appears in this movie and I just kind of like got up and looked at myself in the mirror and thought, Wait. what's going on? Like it didn't make sense. It was. Why did you look at yourself in the mirror? Like were you just, was this like a marking of the passage of time? Like, oh, my God. It questioned my, I had to question my reality. Right. I couldn't believe that someone had made a conscious choice to piece that music to this scene and that movie. Totally. I was so surprised. It, totally. To me, I haven't been that shocked by a bad music choice since the basketball scene in Catwoman where Benjamin Bratt and Halle Berry are doing this sort of like romantic kind of flirting playing basketball with terrible wide-angle shots by the director only known by the first name of Pitoff. And it's like some sort of flashback to a Spike Lee 1990s uh, music video. And it just, the movie's bad already, that film Catwoman, but it makes it worse. Right. Well, I I mean like. So I, I had a flashback from this film to a worse film. Great. I mean like Val Kilmer's hair, Val Kilmer's sunglasses, just Val Kilmer. I mean, the whole thing is like, oh, look, I love Val as well. I mean, I'm not surprised you said earlier him and Sizemore had big fights because he's like a notorious fuck knuckle, just like an absolute prick. And knowing guys who worked on Island of Dr. Moreau or having even watched Lost Souls about the making of the Island of Dr. Moreau, you know, infamous douchebag. But, um, but oh, man, like his whole vibe in this, he's like, I don't know, he's like, Space Guy Fieri or something. He's like bleached hair, bleached tips, frosted tips, those stupid-ass glasses, yeah. Oh, but his character is so inconsistent. His character starts off with the peroxide hair, which is a choice, I suppose. Like, yeah, I, mean, I don't think it actually adds anything to the character, but sure. No, no, it, it can. It, it works for Joshua Jackson in um, Cruel Intentions. <laughs> Deep cut. It's great there. It's, but uh, Yeah, but he's like- To me, I actually thought perhaps the filmmaker thought- Let's give him some Iceman from Top Gun and give him the same kind of blonde hair and the same attitude. Like I was actually waiting for him to basically do that teeth thing where he kind of like, you know, bites his teeth and almost like kisses uh, Tom Cruise homoerotically in the locker room scene. Um, The hair is the same. The attitude is the same. And then halfway through the film – somehow he becomes the hero and we jump to a flashback to a romance scene, not previously seen, with our lead female character and now he becomes the hero? Like what? I mean, I wondered if they had done some substantial recutting and that a lot of that stuff had actually been in 
like those scenes have been played out in full in some sort of version where you had more time on the spaceship at the beginning because they do that throughout. They often cut back to like weirdly Terence Stamp talking in some scene with dialogue that wasn't in that scene with that dialogue much later. And it never really feels like it was a choice as much as like a poor choice. You know, like they'd gone, oh, this movie doesn't work, it's too long or something. Oh, well, let's let's just get to Mars faster. It's called Red Planet. Why aren't we at the Red Planet? And, you know, that's like that terrible, awful voiceover at the beginning with that Carrie Ann Moss delivers where she's like, you know, I think she introduces Val Kilmer's character as like, he wasn't my first choice. He's this like cocksure loser. Oh, or Benjamin Bratt's character where he's like, you know, like that really cliched, um, I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's like he plays by his own rules but gets the job done. <laughs> or something like that. And you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, man. We're in for it here. Yeah, it, it, that really felt like the voiceover at the start was basically a crutch that employed in post-production to try and replace scenes that cut. And then I can just imagine a studio note saying, get to Mars faster. But yeah. So they've just truncated the first part of the film, added voiceover to explain how they're on the spaceship, and then basically added like a log line you'd expect to see on a baseball card saying Benjamin Bratt plays by his own rules. Yeah, that's right. And that's basically his entire character. And by the way, we discussed Aliens first and casting second, I think, in our previous review of Mission to Mars. Let's reverse that and start with casting here. We've just talked Tom Sizemore. We've just talked Val Kilmer. Benjamin Bratt, that character is just a a, a loss for words. Like, it is such a one-note character and he is going, he's dialed at, he starts at 10 and he goes at 10 the whole way. Like, it is such a boring, one-dimensional cliche. You said there's that voiceover from Carrie Ann Moss. I don't think we needed that because we find out within two seconds huh. that he's the cocksure flyboy with plenty of girls sending him romantic messages through space and it just remains that the entire time. Yeah. Without any apparent reason. Totally. Like, spoilers, but I was pretty pleased when Simon Baker pushes him off a cliff. Like, that's like the highlight of the movie. It's like, ugh, good riddance to that blowhard. Fuck. What a buzzkill. <laughs> like- and that's maybe the reason why they made him such a wanker, so that when he was killed off, we wouldn't entirely sympathise for him and we'd feel some sort of empathy for Simon Baker's character. Um, who, by the way, then ends up being characterised as a bit of an a-hole, which is, again, a bit of a character flip too because initially he's portrayed quite um, sympathetically as almost a, an audience surrogate, like he's sort of a newbie on the ship, he's not a trained astronaut, he's asking the sort of questions that you and I would ask if we were also on board the spaceship. And then he kind of becomes like the guy who betrays them which I, I suppose is a character reveal or a twist, and that happens simultaneously at the same time where Val Kilmer goes from being a cocksure newbie slash sleaze to being the leading man we're meant to root for, all in one scene. Yeah, I'm not surprised Terence Stamp's character just wanted to be left alone to die. Like, fuck hanging out with these people. I love how they give Terence Stamp this backstory where he's a scientist who becomes a theologian. Okay, interesting. And then they kill him off within about 20 minutes. And I wonder, well, like, why was he even in the film? Was there any reason to have that character at all? Because 
I mean, to me, that's interesting, right? A man of science becomes a man of religion. Yeah, I mean, like what, like Matthew McConaughey in Contact or something was like a, an interesting version of that character. But you're right, his was almost the only character with a a point of view that would have been interesting to hear from when they were, for instance, all about to suffocate to death, right? It's like, but but you're right, they just offed him. Total waste. Total waste, total waste. Can I also express <laughs> a frustration with the character choice made? Okay. So Tom Sizemore, right, another cocksure character. Everyone's cocksure in this film. Lots of cocks, very sure. Sure. At the end where Tom Sizemore decides he's he's done, uh, one or two of those alien-like uh, beetles have gone to his suit and looks like he'll be eaten alive much like Simon Baker was, right? Mm-hmm. So then he's, as an act of what appears to be heroism, he says to Val Kilmer, go without me, you know, run, I'm a done guy, right? So that's good, good on him. But then he sets off a grenade to suicide but basically takes out half the planet oh, yeah. and almost kills Val Kilmer as well. It's like, oh, man. what? Like the act goes from being an act of generosity to being fucking selfish. Like he he he, he kills like within it appears to be like a kilometre and how Val Kilmer survives that I do not know. But it seemed like a really weird screenplay or directing choice to make. Oh, yeah, you've spent the whole movie looking for the mysterious algae that has made Mars a breathable atmosphere, and when he finally finds it, he gets attacked by some bugs, so he burns the entirety of all of the algae. What the fuck? Like, that's the least scientific thing ever. I mean, movies always do this. Someone turns up on some planet that you're not even from, and they get menaced by some sort of, like, creature, and they're like, well, I guess we're just going to have to kill it. It's like, motherfucker, you're the person who's not from here. Like, they're just goddamn beetles living in algae. Just get eaten. Be a man and get eaten like a man. Oh, actually, speaking of antagonists, let's discuss Amy the robotic dog. Ugh. That's terrible. Okay, so audience listeners, for those who haven't seen the film recent times, at the start they set up with lots of exposition the robotic dog-like character called Amy, which is an acronym, and it apparently has two modes Act like a dog or act like a terrorist. It's like yeah. uh, it's like the offensive shank mode <laughs> button. That's right. And at the start, you see that where basically it acts like it's hostile. Anyway, they land, it takes a beating, and it's permanently stuck into aggressive mode. Now, to me, this feels like this would be the main antagonist in another film. And it appears too much in this film, but not enough. So it feels like it should be in the film all the time, but it just appears on a few occasions, including the end. And to me, it's really fighting with the other antagonist, which is the alien. I guess there's three antagonists, right? There's the planet, there's the alien bugs, and there's Amy. And to me, those three antagonists aren't balanced. In fact, you could actually say the fourth antagonist is the fight-or-flight selfish attitude of the character's in the troop. Yeah, yeah. I also... So when Simon Baker goes bad. The fifth one is my desire to continue watching this movie. That's the truest antagonist of them all. <laughs> but this thing, Amy, look, it looks very impressive from a CG point of view. The strange part is that it looks 
10 times better than these crazy bugs. Like, I get it. The bugs are organic. They're harder to create because CG wasn't as advanced at that time. But, Your Honour, I point to uh, Evidence A, Jurassic Park, seven years beforehand, which has organic characters which look 10 times better and are crafted with the combination of computer-generated images and puppetry. These bugs look just goofy, but Amy looks pretty good. I mean, it's a metal character, but it has the reflections, has texture. Anyway, it doesn't appear enough for me. It appears towards the end. I kind of like the ending where he stops it, but it really doesn't serve much of a purpose, and I don't feel it's stalking the characters enough. Um, The only props I'll give it is that it has a little drone, like mate, so a drone detaches from it, and acts as a second set of eyes to chase the astronauts around the planet. I thought that was kind of prescient, you know, a bit of ahead of its time, the use of drones. But besides that, to me, it wasn't balanced and integrated enough into the overall story. Don't you think, though, like I kept thinking, oh, look at these little insects. Surely at some point a giant version of one of these will turn up? Oh, like an Aliens, for example. Oh, like just give me just one of the bugs from Starship Troopers just going to fucking menace them. I was going to say, exactly, yeah. Uh, you know, but instead it's like, oh, no, they're actually just going to be eaten by a whole bunch of cicadas. Okay. Yep, I know, I know. And, like, I'm not like, oh, a movie needs big dumb aliens to be successful, you know, like I don't know if you ever saw that. I don't know, 2008 movie uh, Splinter, for instance, with the parasite that transforms people into hosts. You know, like you can have invisible bugs. But just like when you give me little bugs, give me like a little, a bigger bug. Give me one, one big bug. I want a big bug. I want the mother bug. You know, it's like seriously, it's like, dude, you could just stomp on these things. You're in a spacesuit. Just walk fast. They're bugs. They're not even flying cockroaches. They're not even German cockroaches, the hardest of all cockroaches to kill. And also, too, to me, there's no suspense. At least in Aliens, when an alien impregnates, uh, let's say, a dog or a cow in Alien 3 or the first human in Alien, there's a sense of tension, like what's it going to do, what form does it take? In this one, it's like a couple of kids discovering an ant's nest, you know, on the street, like... The bugs crawl all over them and they get distressed and that's the end. Yeah. Hardly an interesting alien. Like the alien here, the bugs, don't to me have any character or any unique trait other than they eat you. Like that's it. I mean essentially it's just a version of piranhas. Yeah. Yeah, but at least piranhas are real and they can draw on that sense of actual life danger. It's like, hey, you could go to Mars and be menaced by anything. Yeah, okay, I'm listening. What are we going to get menaced by? Small bugs. Locusts. Yeah. <laughs> not even not even a locust swarm, ground locusts. <laughs> They're just going to crawl along, along green algae. Oh, yeah, okay, I guess. But don't worry, there's a robot. Yeah. Yeah, the robot's kind of silly. I did not care for it. <laughs> Now, I do have a few points, Nate, before we move on. Okay. Uh, I didn't think this film, to give it credit where credit may be due, is that even though they separate Carrie Ann Moss and put her in the spaceship, by initially making her a leading character as the captain, she's then sidelined in the spaceship while the blokes go to Mars. That frustrated me. But what I did like is they used that J.J. Abrams story style of two action beats unfolding at the same time. 
So she's trying to like save the spaceship and they're trying to survive on the ground. Um, that's not always loved by all people. I know you're not a huge fan of J.J. Abrams and I don't like a lot of his stuff, but that's a trick that he's had in a lot of his stories where he has those two stories happening simultaneously. He's basically doubling down on his action and I actually quite like that. So I'm giving it thumbs up for that. It was curious though that they made the decision to leave her on the ship and not say Sizemore's character or Terence Stamp's character or someone or Tom Tom Baker? No, Simon Baker. Tom Baker is Doctor Who. Simon Baker. Because yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know men are from Mars, but it did feel like a big uh, sausage uh, fest down there on Mars, didn't it? Yeah, it felt like basically screenwriting of the time, where basically there's a token gesture to empower the female character, but ultimately she's sidelined. Yeah, that's right. They had to go to Venus for her to go to the strongly vaginal planet. <laughs> All right, let's uh, tie a bow on our combined review. Which film has aged better? Okay, Mission to Mars has definitely aged better. I mean, there's still some really nice filmmaking in Mission to Mars. Red Planet is a curiosity. Yeah, I hear. I agree. I agree. Um, now, let's jump to trivia before we get to the awards. So I mentioned the fighting and you were saying you weren't surprised. Tell our audience about Tom Sizemore. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Is Tom Sizemore cancelled? Like, I mean, I used to love it when Tom Sizemore would turn up in movies. How are you allowed to even speak in appreciation for his 19... 19- 90s roles? Like, what, what is the current state of Sizemore? Yeah, I can't recall. I don't think he's been cancelled as such for uh, a Me Too moment or anything like Jared Leto, you know, delivering used condoms and dead rats, you know, on the doors of his co-stars during the making of Suicide Squad. I don't think he did anything like that. I just think, a bit like Mickey Rourke, he has become a victim of his own temper and indulgence. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, and so probably is more of a liability, I would say. I don't know if it's libelous or defamatory. I think everyone knew he was a massive cokehead or whatever. And then he was in that relationship with like Heidi Fleiss or something. He had a sex tape. Um, Michael Mann went to bat for him for a while and they did that TV show together. What was it called? Um, uh, robbery homicide, but then Tom Sizemore behaved really badly on that. He's just like a hothead, you know, just probably a huge douche. Yeah, well, he got two stars who basically featured in Heat, critically acclaimed film by Michael Mann in 95. So here we are five years later. Apparently they were friends. Kilmer had a reputation for being difficult already uh, on set, not necessarily for using drugs or anything, but just based on his temper and ego. And you mentioned before the filming of The Island of Dr. Moreau where that was a disaster based on Kilmer's attitude on set. You've got Sizemore, who you mentioned, who had allegedly drug issues, but apparently the falling out on Red Planet occurred because Kilmer became enraged when he discovered that the production had paid for Sizemore's exercise machine to be shipped to the set. What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, apparently. Ah, that's awesome. So petty. Apparently he shit. That's great. Yeah, apparently he shouted on set, I'm making 10 million on this. You're only making two. To which Sizemore responded, 
by throwing a 50-pound weight from his exercise machine at Kilmer. Ah, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean- And then what happened was yeah. the two of them refused to speak to each other um, and wouldn't come onto set if the other was present. So they had to use body doubles to shoot scenes involving both of them. Wow. And it became so bad that one of the producers is said to have asked Sizemore not to hit Kilmer in the face when a big fight happened. But guess what? Sizemore purposely punched Kilmer instead, albeit in the chest, but actually made the connection. Wow. Yeah. God damn. That's funny. They have actually since uh, apparently made up and reconciled. Of course they did because they probably crossed paths on some sort of shitty DTV movie. I mean, Sizemore, you go to IMDb, since, you know, 2000 and, and I don't know, since the year 2000, he's been about 110 movies. He must just do one day on set on all of these. Nazi Overlord, Dead Ringer, Black Wake, Unkillable, The Lich. I mean, you can't even find these on Amazon Prime. I know, I know. Look, he's a nominee for some of the awards coming up, so let's not step on those because, okay, yeah, he's he's heavily nominated. Let me just leave it at that. <laughs> but, yeah, look, he was he was always a, a lovely presence in the 1990s when he'd turn up because he'd be like, oh, shit, he's a wild card. What's Madman Sizemore going to do? <laughs> Turns out it was drugs and Heidi Fleiss. <laughs> <laughs> um, some other small trivia tidbits. Let's start with Mission to Mars. Apparently those space suits they wore cost 100k to make, which sounds like a lot, but a real NASA space suit costs between 10 and $12 million. Oh, yeah? Okay. Now, I found the original director of the film. Guess who it was? I'll give you a clue. Okay. He made a Pirates movie. Uh the first pirate movie. John Turtletub. Now, what the? Gore Verbinski. <laughs> Gore Verbinski. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Amazing, right? Wow. Gore Verbinski, what had he directed at this point? Because he hadn't done The Ring yet. What's that film? Is it The Mexican? Yeah, but- That was in 2000 or so. Yeah, that's right. So if he was attached to Mission to Mars, so he'd just done his uh, music videos or whatever. Oh, you know what he'd done? Mouse Hunt. Okay, so he hadn't done much. So it was pretty amazing that this guy walked away from this movie because he wasn't getting paid enough when he was hardly a big-time director by then. Interesting. Well, Mouse, Mouse Hunt's pretty great. Right, okay. Um, apparently, uh, Don, do you say, do you pronounce his name Cheadle? Cheadle? I believe his name is Donathan Cheadle. <laughs> Donathan, allegedly, during the making of this film, actually slept outside by himself to get a sense of the environment and isolation. Uh, check out Legolas. No, not Legolas. What was Viggo Mortensen's character in Stupid Lord of the Rings films? Oh, that's right. He was camping and fishing, wasn't he? I'm Aragorn. I know how it is to live on Mars with elves. (laughs) Um, Another tidbit. Apparently the crew used over 14,000 gallons of paint to spray paint the soil Mars red. That was the colour, Mars red. Oh, yeah? Do you think one Mars looks better than the other? Between the two films? Like, do you think the red planet- Yeah, it's hard to tell based on the colour correction, isn't it? Like, I thought the grade was a bit too heavy, a bit too orange in Red Planet, which ironically is closer to red. <laughs> well, you know, Tony Scott's been making movies, have been making movies set on Mars since 1987 because he loved those, like, really orange grad filters that he put on everything. So, like, Beverly Hills Cop 2 has got that super orange grad filter on top of it. And I did wonder watching these movies, I wonder if they did these grad filters, but no, it was probably right at the early years of um, digital intermediates. So I'd guess it was probably done with a DI 
and they just sucked the blue out of the sky as opposed to- Yeah, The Matrix was two years before and that was using digital colour correction, so I'm assuming it was the same here. Yeah, I mean the first film to do a full DI was um, Oh Brother, We're Out There. That's right. Yeah, 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 you're right. Totally, totally. But that came out in 2000 as well. So maybe some of, I don't know, I'd have to look more into the history of DIs. So maybe Red Planet, some of it was done optically. I'm not sure. Anyway, who knows? Perhaps so. All right. Um, other little facts. Let's jump to Red Planet. Look, I couldn't find much about the uh, making of Red Planet. <laughs> not a film loved by fans. Um for what it's worth, apparently it was originally titled Alone. And then during pre-production, it was changed to Mars. But of course, to avoid confusion with Mission to Mars, which opened about nine months beforehand, they finally changed it to Red Planet, which I've got to say is a much better title than Alone, which sounds more like a film like Castaway with Tom Hanks. Yeah, Alone is not a good title for this. Also, the characters never really spend any time alone. No, it's bizarre. Weird title. Hey. Red Planet here on IMDb says many of the Mars scenes were filmed in Wadi Rum, Jordan. I thought it was shot in Australia. Yeah, both. Anywho, let's jump to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Let's start with Mission to Mars. So guess who was originally cast in the Connie Nielsen role? I'll give you a clue. Nick Cage really loved her. Oh, Elizabeth. And... Killed someone for her. Well, I was going to say Elizabeth Shue. No, Monica Potter. She of Wait, what? Con Air. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would not have got that. Yeah, that's a deep cut. Okay, it's a deep cut. All right. No, I mean, I like Con Air, but no one, no one remembers her. Um, jumping to Red Planet, apparently Meg Ryan was originally offered the role played by Carrie Ann Moss. And Joseph Fiennes was actually was actually considered for the Val Kilmer role. Yeah, right, Joseph Fiennes. Yeah, there you go. All right, let's play Spot the Aussie, Mission to Mars. Were there any? I don't think so. I did not spot an Aussie in Mission to Mars. Well, the film was good despite that. Let's jump to Red Planet. I think we know who the Aussie here is. I did spot, what did I call him earlier? Simon Baker. That's his Simon name. Baker. That is, his, in fact, his name. Yeah, he changed name. He included his wife's surname for a long time in his surname, but he's gone back to just Simon Baker. Ah, uh, yeah, Simon Baker, Denny. <laughs> That's classic. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's jump to the awards. We're running long here. Let's jump to the box office. Okay. I think we can probably guess these. So have a guess which one won. Mission to Mars. Yep. Mission to Mars. Had a budget of $100 million, so pretty pricey film back in 2000. Did 61000 domestically in the States. Right, 61000 Plus, ah, oh, sorry, my mistake, $61 million. Okay, that sounds more like it. Plus $50 million internationally for a grand total of $111 million. So didn't do well given it cost $100 million. Yeah, right. Red Hill. Red Hill? Red Planet. Red Planet. Had a similar budget, $80 million, did a lousy $17.5 million domestically in the US, plus $16 million internationally for a grand total of $33.5 million US. So it was an absolute disaster. No surprises there, and it's pretty fair to say that even if the film was good, its lunch was probably eaten by a film with the same concept that came out nine months before. Fair to say? Yeah, totally. And this was totally the end of Val Kilmer as a 
leading man in big Hollywood movies. Like you can draw a line under Red Planet because, I mean, after this, yeah, I mean, he was in The Salton Sea, which is great, Wonderland, which is all right, and Spartan, that um, David Mamet movie, which fucking rules. But it was never the same for him after this. Yeah, I mean, the only star really who was on the rise here, which we'll get to in the awards, was Kerry ann Moss. Totally. But let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. All right, have a guess. Which one impressed the critics? I mean, Mission to Mars must have got reasonable reviews, right? Like, reasonable. You know what? You would have thought so, and you are wrong. Oh, okay. 24%. Dang. 24%. But with any saving grace, Red Planet has a terrible critic score on the tomato meter, 14%. Yeah, fair. Have a guess which one the audiences loved in comparison. Starting with Mission to Mars. I just gave Mission to Mars here. I mean, Mission to Mars is a better movie than Red Planet. Yeah, audiences only gave it 30% though and they gave Red Planet 28%. So I'm surprised the score for Mission to Mars is so low. It's just like take both my ugly children, I don't care. (laughs) All right, let's jump to best title. Mission to Mars or Red Planet? I I quite like both titles. I mean- yeah, so do I. I think they're both kind of evocative. So I'd, I'd be happy to give this to both of them. You know, like Mission to Mars is more like obvious, but Red Planet's still a cool title. Yeah, I agree. Given that Red Planet was its third or fourth title, I actually think it's quite a good title. <laughs> yeah, they, they got that. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, for the first time ever, we have dual winners for best title. Okay. Let's jump to best poster. Uh, if you have a, an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever, and it shows the specific artwork for this episode. Have a squiz and you'll see both posters side by side. But as a quick recap, Mission to Mars, essentially this shot of what appears to be, what, the planet, bit of orange and this white light from the sky. You can't really see much at all. And Red Planet had a few posters. The best one basically was very red, which shows Val Kilmer leaning over um, what appears to be an injured uh, astronaut and the shadow of the robotic uh, terrorist vehicle Amy lingering over them, which to me isn't really reflective of the movie. So, eh, I think these films are both terrible. I, I swear that Red Planet one wasn't the theatrical poster, and it was the. I don't think it was. Was it? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the giant heads poster. I think you're right. Which isn't any better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I think the giant heads one is even worse. Yeah, no. So. They're both pretty bad. I'm tempted, actually, Just give it to neither. not to clear a winner. Nah. Yeah, okay. The Mission to Mars poster looks more like the poster to the movie The Core. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah, totally. Great movie. <laughs> Just great. All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, uh, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in these twin movies, just like Billy Bob and Affleck did in Armageddon? I would say, let's start with Mission to Mars. Would it be Don Cheadle? Or Gary Sinise. I mean, Gary Sinise would play supporting roles in Bad Guys, as we discussed. This is his first. This is his first shot at the at, in the big leagues. Had Don Cheadle though done much before this though? Like he'd done like obviously Boogie Nights, where he is sensational. But I actually can't recall him being in any big kind of like Dude. Hollywood movies before. Like man, man, we're- out of sight. Bullworth, Volcano. Devil in a Blue Dress. Fuck, he rules in Devil in a Blue Dress. That's great. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You know, he turned up in a bunch of things. You know, he's got a small role in Colours, that um, Dennis Hopper, um, LA Gangs movie. 
But yeah, no, maybe this was also his big uh, big entry into hundred million dollar movies. Or Connie Nielsen. I mean, Gladiator hadn't come out at this stage. Um, I'd say she'd be contender, and maybe Jerry O'Connell, although he'd been around for a while. Um, I'm putting forward Connie Nielsen as my nominee. Okay. <laughs> and Red Planet. Uh, it's got to be Simon Baker, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. Before this, he'd just been on E Street or something, right? Uh, I think so, but hadn't he been in? I oh, know, been in LA Confidential. Yeah, yeah, but this was a bigger role. Yeah, I'm gonna give it to Simon Baker. Okay, the big flicker. Yeah. Also, while we're just talking about him, he was in a very cool late '90s neo noir movie called Judas Kiss. Great movie, really good movie. Yeah. Worth watching. Makes this whole thing worthwhile, just giving a little shout-out to a <laughs> film like that. <laughs> All right, next award, the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, starting with Mission to Mars. Now, I should do a caveat here. Pretty hard to give awards like this to movies where you have a very small team of astronauts where there aren't many supporting characters or people appearing as waiters or doormen or taxi drivers in the background. Uh, so... Has anyone gone on to have a huge career from this film who wasn't a big wig at the time? No. I mean, it's not like- No, I don't think so. I mean, Armin Muller-Stahl is uncredited, I think. Oh. But he already had a career. <laughs> like, Yeah, I agree, yeah. I've got him for an award later on. Okay. And it's a, yeah, it's a tragedy that he isn't credited. But we'll get to that. Okay. So I'd say we're looking at no nominees here. Okay. None. Let's move on. The Tommy Lee Jones Steeler Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee in a supporting role in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with Mission to Mars? Nobody. No, I agree. I mean, maybe Tim Robbins, but nobody. Yeah, I agree. Tim Robbins didn't have much to work with, but he had enough. Uh Red Planet? Nobody. <laughs> like, Nobody. Oh, man. Wow. Well, like- This is the problem doing a review with films with a limited cast. But, I mean, like- Not really many nominees to choose from. Terrence Stamp, it's not like he chooses the scenery enough. Like, if he had turned up as his The Limey character- Oh, true. You know, um, if you've ever seen Soderbergh's film The Limey, you know, where he just was really like, my name is Wilson and I'm on Mars. That'd be, that'd be something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he doesn't. But he doesn't. Okay. All right, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with greater roles, <laughs> who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films. Oh, hey. Let's start with Mission to Mars <laughs> first. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Keep your powder dry. Okay, okay. Let's start with Mission to Mars. Maybe Jerry O'Connell? I love Jerry. He hasn't really done as much as you'd expect. I'd have him as a nominee. Pretty big film. He was probably in his late 20s at this stage. I would have expected him to do more and then up against In Red Planet, <laughs> take your pick, Val Kilmer or Tom Sizemore. I mean, this is called the Mickey Rourke Award, but it could just be called the Tom Sizemore Award. Like there's no reason why we couldn't be like in the winner of the Tom Sizemore okay. Award for Tom Sizemoreing is Tom Sizemore. Like Tom Sizemore gets it. All right, done. Okay. Moving on, the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high, starting with Mission? No. <laughs> like- I'm giving it to, in this particular film, I think Tim Robbins did the best with what he had and I thought he was the highlight for the entire film, but certainly not his career high. And I'm putting him up against in Red Planet. Oh, gee, I don't know. 
Um, I mean, we're talking about scraping the barrel here. A Terrence Stamp? And it certainly wasn't his career high. Yeah. Gee, this is going to be like winning second last place. All right, I'm going to give it to Tom, Tim Robbins unless you object. No, no. I vagued out and forgot what the award was there, mate. <laughs> no one gets it. All right. <laughs> the Best Dialogue Award. Uh, these films aren't particularly quotable, but was there a favourite quote that you had? Okay. You know, nothing comes to mind at all for either film. How about you? I mean, not in a either quotable because it's awesome or quotable because it's particularly bad. So not really. There's certainly nothing where you're like, oh, dang, now that's a hell of a line of dialogue. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, we joked before about the awful opening narration to um, Red Planet, but really, I couldn't remember what it was except as those broad strokes of just shittiness. <laughs> all right, no winner. Again, wow. This is the- Of all the podcast episodes, we've never had so many Awards where we don't even have a nominee, yet alone a winner. Bloody wipeout. Wow. Yep. Yeah, total blowout. Okay. Let's jump to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Mission to Mars, I'm nominating Jerry O'Connell. And Red Planet, I'm nominating Benjamin Bratt. Both playing Pratt's. Yeah, okay. Give <laughs> I, I wish. I wish they chewed harder. That's all I'll say. I wish they chewed harder. Like both of these movies would really have benefited, maybe particularly Red Planet. And look, Val, Val Kilmer's maybe doing it a little bit, you know, not spitting his gum out or something at the beginning. I don't know. But, you know, there's like a, what was it? There was that Leave Schreiber Mars movie, Surviving Mars or Last Man on Mars or The Last Time I Died on Mars or something from 2013 that really lent into being a stupid zombie Mars genre movie and it was much more entertaining. Maybe it just needed a bit more of that shit. Yeah, lean in harder. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, looks like Benny Bratt gets it. Okay. Moving on to the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. So Mission to Mars, no one really jumps out there but for Red Planet, it has to be Terrence Stamp, right? I hope so. Yep. All right. So, Terrence, you get the award. It's not a great award to get. I'm very sorry. I hope you're paid very well and you own three more properties as holiday houses after making that movie Red Planet. Hey, just on this, while I remember, and this is the worst time to talk about it, but how stupid was the design of the cr- the crash landing thing with those giant balls that just make them bounce forever? Yeah, it was weird, right? That kills Terrence, that kills his character, that kills Terrence Stamp's character. It just... They just they just literally bounce down the side of Mars forever because they're on huge inflatable balls. Yeah, I would have thought basically you would try and land and then be static as soon as possible. You wouldn't actually have something that with kinetic energy on a planet where potentially people might be more like lighter, so to speak, because the gravity is different. I'm not sure if having basically a giant fucking bouncy ball is the best idea with lots of people inside. No, especially when the the atmosphere is such that you're going to bounce much higher. Yeah, I don't think scientists wrote this movie. <laughs> Fair. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I have seen The Martian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen? Again, in a film where there are about six characters on Mars. Yeah, but I get, hey, it's that guy 
with Tom Sizemore whenever he turns up in anything. Oh, right. Okay. So, like. Um, so, I've got a guy I'm going to put down for winning, winning multiple awards. He doesn't appear on IMDb. He's not credited. I think you know who I'm thinking of. No, who? Oh, sorry. He appears in Mission to Mars. Oh, Armin Muller-Stahl, him? Yes. Genius actor. Tell our podcast listeners who he is and where they may recognise him from. Fuck. I mean, Armin Muller-Stahl had quite a career. Uh, what's a movie that, I mean, Eastern Promises, very memorable as the Russian crime boss in that. Shine. Who? Um, the International. Uh, the International, yeah, good in The International. Uh, Night on Earth, he was in Night on Earth. I mean, he's he's been in a lot of- The West Wing. Yeah, yeah. been in a lot of things, hasn't he? Um, is he German? Is he German? He's German, right? Yeah, he's German. Yeah, he's German. What's interesting about it is that he was born in 1930, so he's 90 years old now. He's barely made any films in recent years for good reason, being almost 90. He did International in 2009. Angels and Demons in 2009, uh, Small Doco voiceover in 2009, two more film, one more film in 2009, does Night of Cups, Terence Malick oh, yeah. in 2015, and he's done. That's it. So he's been very quiet. So he had that kind of like burst of being in a few American films basically in his like 70s, and then that's it. But great actor, so much presence on screen. Often plays a variety of nationalities too. Like you could play someone who's Eastern European, someone who's Western European, <laughs> someone who's Middle all, Eastern. All of the Europeans. All of the Europeans. <laughs> what a range. <laughs> East, West. Is there a South Europe? <laughs> he could do that too. <laughs> they just need to invent that shit. So I'm giving it to I'm in. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Named after Delroy Lindo who starred in Get Shorty, Heist, and A Lifeless Ordinary. Starting with Mission to Mars, so I'm nominating him again. Okay. He's up again. Okay. Who do you have? I mean, Mission to Mars, would I personally like to see Jerry O'Connell in more movies and just not turning up in uh, Bravo talk shows or whatever to talk about Real Housewives? Yeah, maybe I would. Maybe I would. But then <laughs> I'm alone with that shit. So no, no, no nominees? Uh, I mean, I... Like when Benjamin Bratt is sometimes in movies, but I guess I'm not particularly passionate about it. Then you'll love Catwoman <laughs> with Halle Berry from 2003 or 4. I've seen Catwoman with Harry O'Berry. Uh, uh, uh. All right. Uh, I'm saying I'm putting him, I mean, up against Terrence Stamp, okay. who I love from the Limey. So given that Terrence Stamp is younger and there's actually a chance that if I'm hand in this award, he actually may be motivated to be appearing more. I'm handing it to Terry. Ter- Terrence Stamp is still like 83 years old. He's not. Yeah, it's a crucial seven-year difference though, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean's 90. I feel that Terrence could do a bit of a Christopher Plummer and appear for a few scenes. At 90, I'm thinking our men could be eating yogurt and like mashed veggies. Maybe. Maybe. All right, give it to Armin. Done. No, no, I'm giving it to Terence. Okay, give it to whoever you like. All right, moving on. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Uh, Starting with Mission to Mars. I mean, Tim Robbins' character is by the name of uh, Woody Blake. Woody? And anyone called Woody. Woody's pretty funny. Woody. Terrible. If you're an Australian and you don't actually understand 
the name Woody as an American would. I agree. Uh, there weren't many crazy names from Red Planet, so I think we're giving it to Woody. Yeah, I mean Gallagher. Crazy. That's not yeah, Give it to Woody. All right, Woody gets the Memphis Reigns Award. Tim Robbins, your award will be waiting for you anytime it's safe to travel internationally. You dang socialist. <laughs> the Memento Award. Name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. So I actually had forgotten I'd forgotten the specific face of the alien in Mission to Mars. I remembered the reaction and the sentiment and the general idea, but I'd actually forgotten about the portrayal and the character design of the alien. So I've got that one, and Red Planet only saw for the first time one day ago. So it's basically null and void and can't compete. How about you? Uh, Yeah, I'd forgotten quite how much I disliked the aliens. I'd actually forgotten how big a plot point the face on Mars you know that it's like that quite famous urban legend thing it's probably not even an urban legend what do you call it like what is the face on Mars yeah it's got it's I agree it's like basically yeah I yeah I know what you're saying yeah okay so the face on Mars um, was such a big plot point and that's quite a cool idea to use that as a sort of jumping off point because I do like movies that kind of heavily fictionalise something that's based on some type of, you know, the the fiction in the science or whatever. So I was like, oh, that's quite neat. So I like that. I did like that. I did like rediscovering the face on Mars, um, even if it turns out much later now that the face on Mars is nothing at all but a, like just a blobby mountain. Yeah, that's a really good hot take. I agree with you. You've convinced me. So it gets the Memento Award. Okay. We're almost at the end. The Die Hard Award. Did any of these films, much like Die Hard inspired films like Under Siege, inspire a crop of clones and leave a legacy? I would say no because movies about going to other planets have been around since the dawn of cinema and continue right through to recent films like The Martian. So I don't think these films, you know, set a template of any sort, I'd say they're pretty average contributions to a pre-existing genre that continues today and has been improved on by better films. Yeah, that's right. Abbott and Costello went to Mars like 47 years earlier. I don't think uh, these movies particularly own that space. (laughs) All right. It's come to that time of the podcast, Gabe. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award. Named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Mission to Mars or Red Planet. Now, they're both films, the same premise, okay? They're both films about a manned mission to Mars where the astronauts go to a place where it's being terraformed for human civilization, but the aliens have other ideas. So, based on that premise, here's our challenge. Which film do we make a sequel to? Mission to Mars. And what's our pitch to make it? (laughs) Oh, sorry. I mean, at least Mission to Mars ends with something that could be quite an interesting jumping-off point for a sequel. Red Planet ends with just like a wet fart. Like <laughs> Val Kilmer survived. They accidentally killed all the algae. Who gives a shit? Mission to Mars, like there's probably a, 
a fairly interesting idea, like following Gary Sinise's character as he blasts off alone millions of miles into space. Okay, so we've got Mission to Mars, which wasn't a box of a smash but certainly made more than Red Planet. We've got more recognisable stars in Mission to Mars or at least stars whose, you know, light is brighter than the more depressing careers of the cast in Red Planet. (laughs) So we've got this film, Mission to Mars, where Gary Sinise, one of the lead characters, flies off into space and ostensibly is going to be basically a human ambassador to meet these aliens. Maybe he'll bonk them. Maybe he'll be, you know, an hors d'oeuvre to them Mm -hmm. and they'll eat him. Who knows? But it feels like it's the end of the film but potentially the start of a sequel. And in some respects, it could potentially be based on the template of Interstellar where good old Matthew McConaughey does something similar, right, in reaching out to try and discover an alien civilization. So if we're doing Mission to Mars, we're bringing Gary Sinise out of retirement after he's retired with a big fat paycheck from nine years on the network TV show CSI New York, which finished in 2013. Gary's back. We lost Tim Robbins. He died in the first film. We've still got Connie Nielsen. No, no, fuck all them off. We don't need any of them. Okay. What about, though? What about? So what's your pitch? Okay. I have two ideas for you, Ben. A big executive chomping a cigar across the table. What's our angle with Gary Sinise? Not a huge star anymore, but bringing him back. What's your pitch to try and impress this big studio executive? Well, okay, like let's assume we have to make a sequel to Mission to Mars. You could have Gary Sinise play the supporting character who you only reveal halfway through, I guess, not unlike the character Cheadle plays in this, where a new team blast off to visit the aliens and they turn up at this alien planet and then halfway through Sinise turns up and he's like, I've been here all along. In fact, I've taken an alien wife, Uh, you know. Um, and on this planet, they make me pregnant and Gary Sinise is heavily pregnant with alien babies. Okay, that's one idea. <laughs> okay, but spoilers for the Jodie Foster film, also with Matthew McConaughey, Contact. Isn't that basically the re- revelation at the end of Contact? Wait, that- That her father is- She's pregnant with alien babies? No, well, at the end of Contact, we discover that her dad- is either living with aliens or the aliens have appeared. No, no, no. That's not. Oh, the aliens appeared to her. Dude, yeah. In that's... the form of her dad. Yeah, they took the form of her dad. God, man, like, Contact is much better than both of these movies. If you have a choice between watching Mission of Mars, Red Planet, watch Contact, but really watch Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> that's the best of them all. Okay, here's an idea. Let's say that the Humans send a second spaceship out with a whole new cast, with a yeah. hot young cast. Yeah. They're buffed, they're tanned, Ugh. they're ready to party. They were on Disney TV shows a year ago. Exactly. And they're going off to find Gary Sinise and they're going to find basically he's like a bearded version of Tom Hanks from Castaway. Yeah. He's like an alien wife and he doesn't want to be rescued. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's right. And. Are they hostile, the aliens, and is he now on their side? I mean- Is he like a mortal Joe from Mad Max Fury Road? Wait, so he's now- What was that What was that movie with Brad Pitt where Tommy Lee Jones was like manning a space station and sending out bad vibes and then Brad Pitt had a big cry? Uh, what was that one called? Yeah, see, exactly. It's so memorable. 
I can't even recall the title. But, yeah, a recent movie, Ad Astra, I think it is. Oh, yes. Sad sack in space. So Gary Sinise is now living in an alien planet sending out bad vibes and they have to send a a team led by Zendaya to stop him. (laughs) And they're shocked to find Gary Sinise pregnant with alien babies and he's shocked to find that that astronauts can be 20 years old and have no surnames. <laughs> okay, how about this? They land and they land to rescue him, but he's actually like immortal Joe from Fury Road and he wants them killed because he's actually happy with these aliens and his harem of five alien wives. So they then essentially become hunted and it becomes like that film Predators where they're on a planet being hunted by the aliens who are like the best of the best. They're like the Marines of Alien. And meanwhile, the whole time, Gary Sinise, bearded with his harem, is just sort of like observing and watching from a tower as the hunt begins. Is that our movie? Okay, so I think no, because that sounds stupid. All of what we talked about sounds stupid. <laughs> I think, though, what about, though, like putting aside having a cast cast from this or making a direct sequel, I reckon there's actually a very interesting idea in what would have actually happened to Gary Sinise's character as he blasts off. Because do they ever explain, for instance, how long ago the aliens had recorded the message? You know, like what if what if you just step that through logically and he landed on this other planet, which he's been like auto-guided there to, and the aliens there don't want him there or they're gone or they're not what he expected. I, I I think Turf and Gary and almost making this not even a sequel to Mission to Mars but like just a new idea where we don't have to pay any IP, we don't have to give, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lowell Cannon and Jim and John Thomas cre- uh, based on characters created by credits. We could just say, like, like, what if you did a new movie that started off with the idea of what happens when an astronaut is lured or sent or brought to a planet by a hyper-intelligent alien race and it is not what they expect? Well, that's basically the end of Prometheus, one of the films in the Alien series. Yeah, totally. And you never actually see what happens at the end because they kill off Nimi Rapace's character the between Alien or between Prometheus and Alien Covenant, but... In Alien Covenant, by the time they've landed, that civilization is ostensibly dead. Yeah. Right? And then basically the aliens have taken over those albino, muscly, six-pack personal trainers. So essentially, Gary Sinise could arrive and find A, no one there. B, he could be seen as a deity and like a Jesus-like figure, and in which case you basically have a film which is essentially recreating the New Testament. He could be seen as hostile. He could be seen as not hostile but unwanted because obviously it could have been generations and generations ago wanted him to come, but that's now forgotten by the current alien politicians. Yeah. What is the most interesting version? If he lands and he's considered to be hostile, they could chase him and he has to survive. If he's a deity, then he could become very happy being appreciated and learning from them, or he could just be like a lab rat and essentially is studied, which would be pretty depressing for him as a life choice. Yeah, well, but what's our story? Well, aren't we? It's basically we just rip off then John Carter of Mars but do it good. 
<laughs> like, I've never seen it. What's the – oh, you mean, hang on, John Carter of Mars, the one that was remade or – Or made. Was the inspiration behind Star Wars. The one with – No, it was like the, the movie with – Taylor Kitsch. Taylor, yeah. So he just turns up and it turns out that he zaps himself to Mars by accident and finds himself embroiled in some sort of intergalactic squabbles. Uh, you know, like uh, he turns up in one alien race called like the oh, – I can't remember what they're called. They've got a stupid name. Um who also looks stupid, are fighting some other alien race. And, um, I mean, you know, then you just play out the, the politics of the world, how he gets involved, how you're going to go bang some native. Which is basically Avatar as well, right? Yeah, totally, all that shit. Sam Worthington's character turns up. Isn't the criticism, though, of John Carter of Mars or Avatar, all those films, is that white guy turns up amongst different species or different culture learns their ways incredibly quickly, becomes the best of them, and then becomes their king. That's kind of the cliche, right? Yeah, although I think I think while Avatar lifts a chunk of plot from Pocahontas and certainly they present their aliens as kind of like um, in tuned with nature and other kind of weird white ideals of what a native indigenous population are, John Carter of Mars isn't quite as sort of overt as that because he turns up and they're like four-armed frog people. So maybe I would pay to watch Gary Sinise fuck a four-armed frog lady. That's the pitch. All right. How about this? We're running out of time. I can't tell if he's climaxing or not. He's just grimacing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're out, almost out of time. The executive's looking across at us thinking, guys, where does this go? How about this? The the crew of sexy new astronauts arrives on the planet to essentially bust him out of prison. They discover two-thirds through the movie that he's actually very happy being there and he wants them to go. But now they've caused a fence of some sort and they're trapped. And they've got to bust out of prison themselves and fly home. And the lesson they learn is... Let people keep on doing what they should do, which is basically a criticism of white explorers discovering Indigenous lands and trying to make people bend to their will. Okay. The end. Cool. But don't this alien civilization aren't they technologically a trillion years superior? Wouldn't they have just like laser fingers that just melt people and stuff like that? It's not like they are a... A, a species who, yeah, like, I don't know. Look, so long as Zendaya gets melted by a disintegration finger, fine. Look, this has been done already. There is no need for us to reinvent the wheel. Just turn to a perfect template, which is Battleship Earth, <laughs> where the humans now are dumb little gerbils, but they discover fighter jets or something weird halfway through and somehow managed to take on the cyclones, whatever they're called, and escape. Wow, what a- It's the same thing you see as well in one of those Planet of the Apes movies where the humans rebel and then they fly home. What a year. The end. 2000 was because Battlefield Earth came out the same year as these two movies. As did shortly after Planet of the Apes. So there we have it, Gabe. But we need a title for our sequel. If the first one was called Mission to Mars, is our one called Mission Mission to something else? Mission from Mars? Mission like 
back to Mars. Come and- Mars attacks? Oh, no, that's been done. Mars. Don't go to Mars. Mars. You've made a great mistake. Look, when in doubt, we always have to lean into a tried and true trope. Mission to Mars, colon, two space, two furious. Done. What was what was the Dirty Dozen 2 called? Still Dirty? No, you know they made a Dirty Dozen 2? No. Yeah, it's Is that- it's terrible. It's called The Next Mission. <laughs> okay, there you go. Okay. The Dirty Dozen, The Next Mission. All right. Mission to Mars, The Next Mission. <laughs> and that is how we make a sequel to Mission to Mars. All right, Gabe, it's time to uh, tie a bow on it. Fair enough. Uh, a big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, who makes the episode sound so good and makes us sound occasionally intelligent. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Twitter. I'd just quickly like to point out also that The Dirty Dozen 2 like, takes place a year later, but it's made 18 years later and everyone has aged terribly. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You've got me curious. All right, Gabe is at Gabe Dalrick on Twitter. Oh, yeah, that. I'm... At Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. As always, we really appreciate it. And if you like the show, please share it with your friends or leave a review online, particularly on Apple Podcasts. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Adios, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. Goodbye.